Leadership New Jersey presents the 2008 Forum on the Future of New Jersey. Hello and welcome to Leadership New Jersey. This series of podcasts is based on the 2008 Forum on the Future of New Jersey, held October 15, 2008, in the studios of New Jersey Network in Trenton. I'm your podcast host, Steve Lubetkin. This year, in addition to the production of these audio podcasts, you can also watch the Leadership New Jersey Forum on the Future of New Jersey, courtesy of video recorded by New Jersey Network. To see the video, visit the Leadership New Jersey website at leadershipnj.org forward slash ffnj2008.html. There's a player on the page, and you can view all of the videos from the entire day's program. In this seventh and final of our 2008 podcast programs, we'll hear the energy and the environment discussion led by Steve Morgan and a group of several speakers, followed by the legislative panel on what it means to be a 21st century leader. Here again is the program chair, Michael Willman. All right, we're moving on to the next group. The next group is headed by the sort of uh, sort of substratum keynote speaker, uh, in this case, as well as a key keynoter. Well, of course, uh, after everything that's been said today, it's uh, going to be a high risk of redundancy. Who can argue with many of the ideas that we've heard today? I have to take issue, though, with the premise upon which this conference was founded, that things are so broken in New Jersey that we need to scrap it all and start over with a clean sheet of paper. First, because, as we've heard, that's very difficult to do. And, in fact, this process doesn't even encourage or support that because we've been talking about a lot of great incremental ideas. I think maybe the common theme in all of this discussion today really has been there is a root cause for where and how we find ourselves today. And I believe that root cause is that we have spent a lot of time, decades, building agenda-driven, rhetoric-fueled arguments in favor of positions. Instead of doing what I think is fundamentally um, more valuable, and that is having identified a problem, create a fact-based discussion around potential solutions, identifying what their costs and benefits or values are. Now, in fairness, I have to confess I'm an engineer by training, so, um, you know, steeped in the scientific method and an analytical approach seems the right thing to me. And I recognize, however... Not all of life's problems can be solved through an analytical process. But many of the problems we've talked about here today most definitely can. And more importantly, I think that the rhetoric-driven discussions that we experience and, and have heard some um, of today have helped create an environment of distrust. This is a situation that... Uh, you know, I think separates people, polarizes people. We've heard some of that polarization. And so what I would offer is that a more fact-based approach to this problem resolution can overcome some of the distrust that has been created over time. Let me give you some real-life examples from my industry, which is 
electrical energy industry. Now, some time ago, New Jersey, like some other states, deregulated the electric delivery business. 1999, ADECA was passed. By 2000, the state's delivery companies were deregulated. And it was premised on the fact that energy prices were too high, that there was a, an ability to treat electricity as a commodity and drive down price. Now, first of all, as a trained engineer, an electrical engineer, I will tell you, electricity is not a commodity. It might someday be able to be treated as a physical commodity, but it cannot be because it doesn't meet one of the primary definitions of a commodity. It cannot be stored. And because it cannot be stored in a meaningful, significant economic way, it cannot be treated as a, as a commodity. But we convinced ourselves through a lot of polished rhetoric that it sounded good. And after all, heck, we can deregulate trucking and we can deregulate a, a lot of other industries. Why not this one? The fundamental flaw in the, in the, in the uh, premise was that if supply and demand are not exactly balanced at all times, the whole system comes crashing to it. And, and uh, having experienced it once, um, some of you may have as well, I don't want to live through that again. Um, it's not a pretty picture. The physics are what govern it. Here's an interesting fact you may not be aware of. It was premised on cheaper energy prices. Energy prices in 1960, the average residential United States residential customer paid 12.5 cents per kilowatt hour. 2007, the average U.S. residential customer paid 10.5 cents per kilowatt hour. Almost 50 years later. Energy prices are not going up. Here's another fact you may not be aware of. By the way, this is all USEIA information. You can go check it on their website. I didn't make it up. Um, in um, 1960, the average residential demand for electricity was about 200 kilowatts instantaneous demand per household. That's about four or five times that now. Okay? Think about why your energy, your electrical energy bill has gone up. The price per unit has gone down. The amount you consume has gone up. Now, let's step back and talk about the Energy Master Plan in New Jersey, which is premised on the need to reduce energy consumption and turn it green. All probably laudable goals and certainly things that we would support. Here, let me give you a fact. Over the last decade, energy consumption in New Jersey, and in fact in the country, has increased at about 1.5% per year. Okay? So somewhere around 35 or 40 years from now, we'll need to double the amount of energy production. But the demand, that is the instantaneous, simultaneous demand for energy is growing at about four or five times that rate, which means in about uh, something like 10 years, we need to double capacity in the system. That means twice as many generating stations, twice as many transmission lines or equivalent, twice as many substations, and so forth. All right, now here's the problem. The, the companies that build those facilities are paid on how many kilowatt hours are delivered. They're not paid 
based on the capacity they build. Although if they don't build sufficient capacity to serve the instantaneous demand, it'll all come crashing to a, to a halt. So you see the disconnect? What I suggest is that the reason these things have occurred is because the people who have promoted the policies and or sold the positions did not understand the underlying um, facts and had not ad adequately considered the, the uh, alternatives and had not considered the consequences of the policy. And so we are left with unintended consequences. The sad reality is that those unintended consequences are real and they have to be dealt with. So my suggestion is not that we scrap the whole thing and start over because I think that's fundamentally impractical and would be unworkable. We need to get back to a fact-based discussion, an open and honest and frank debate of the issue on its merits. We need to consider the facts. We need to identify alternatives. We need to cost those alternatives, and we need to ask ourselves what the consequences are likely to be. And then we need to make a rational decision based on how all of the stakeholders and all of the constituencies are affected. And in that way, we can arrive at the proper solution set. Now, this has implications for uh, policy um, wonks. It has uh, implications for regulators. It has implications for legislators. And how would you make it work? Well, for example, maybe you say in order to, in order to institute a policy or to promulgate a law or, or establish a regulation, you have to first have gone through some rigor that you can demonstrate in a transparent method that you've done all of this, some due diligence, so that the casual observer can look at that process and say, yes, here are the facts, here are the conclusions that were reached, and now I understand how those conclusions were reached. And you have to put in place some metrics of performance measurement so that as time goes on, you can see, did I or did I not achieve the goals that were intended of this policy, regulation, or legislation. And if not, you must have a mandatory sunset. It has to stop, it has to go away, it has to be changed. And you need to take that decision away from the people who have the vested interest who, who uh, set the policy, regulation, or legislation. So with that, um, I'm sure there will be um, many other discussions about how best to achieve this, but um, the, the basic premise is that we need to get back to an open, honest, frank, fact-based discussion and identification of solutions. Thank you. All right, to show you how nimble we are, we're changing the whole damn format right now. All right, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions which you're going to vote on while we do this. We had planned to have seven additional speakers in the same vein that you have heard before, and then we had planned to follow that with a group of very distinguished legislators who were going to comment on the, uh, sort of the, the thoughts of the day. Catherine Kish was going to lead that discussion. We are going to bring the citizen group and the government group together. We're going to put the legislators who have been generous with their time and who are joining us right here. We're going to take those seven speakers and we'll put them up here one at a time with Catherine. But what we expect to have is now a three-way dialogue. You can continue to interact, and you will continue to vote, and Catherine will give you the chance with the touchpads. But 
Our legislators can comment on the speakers. The speakers can put questions to the legislators. That will achieve several goals, all of which are totally obvious to you. And we will then proceed in that fashion. So I'm going to ask you to vote on a couple of notions that haven't come up today while our legislators are seated and miked. The mics matter because of the streaming. So if you're going to ask a question, it really does matter. We get a mic to you also for the podcasting. So uh, Andrew. If you would invite the legislators to take their seats. Catherine, if you want to come on up. Uh, if you are one of those remaining speakers, we're going to go right through that group. We're going to do that in a way that uh, is going to be more interactive. While you're there, vote on these. Going forward, mandate an increase in the state income tax to address any gap between the cost of government and the revenue available to fund government on an annual basis. The premise is the income tax is the least regressive revenue-raising option. Lawmakers consider it tantamount to political suicide. Forcing the utilization of this option to address a budget imbalance will ensure that lawmakers and the executive branch have exhausted other options. If you're in favor, you know what to vote. If you're not, you know what to vote. Survey says you're not in favor. Next, put the Attorney General's office into receivership. Put it in the hands of the U.S. Attorney's Office. Treat it like an underperforming school district is treated. You're in favor or not? Survey says you're not. Based on the broad principles of bankruptcy, abrogate the agreements through which the state is obligated to fund state employees' pensions and the pensions or other of other government employees. You get the notion? You don't get the notion? In favor? Not in favor? Survey says? Survey says? Survey doesn't say. Oh, the survey crashed, so we won't be doing that anymore. All right. Catherine, are you ready to rock and roll? Sure. Gentlemen, you're ready to rock and roll as well, right? Yes, sir. All right. Let me just take this stuff and I'll move okay. out of your way. I'm you borrowing your pen. Oh, yeah. thank you. If I may, before I ask our individual speakers to come up, I would like to ask um, a bit of a question that might be provocative for you. Um, the theme of the day is really what is the job of the state this any state, the state of New Jersey we're looking at particularly, but in the 21st century, what is the job of a state? And today we have heard everything from abolish counties to consolidate everything in counties. We've heard people talking about energy, as Steve just did. We've heard people talking about nonprofits. We've heard people talk about, you name it, we talked about it, taxpayer policy, abolishing taxes, adding taxes on all sides of the issue. 566 municipalities, 616 school districts now, and any number of fire districts and, and other 183. Things. Thank you. In the light of the 21st century, where we have a global economy, we have Wikonomics, we have Twitter, we have Facebook, we have our Blackberries, and, and um, we would understand if you had to, you know, 
do something on your BlackBerry while you're sitting up here even, because people seem to do that. Um, what, is, what is the job of a state in this environment? How do, we, how do we determine? Does the state get bigger? Does it get smaller? Does it take on more responsibility? Does it take on less? What do you think? What do you think? Can, can we, um, well, do we have too much government? Let me put it that way. You are sitting here as representatives. So go. Who wants the question? Yes, sir. I, I'm happy. I'm Assemblyman John Bramnick. Uh, I'm sorry. You know what? You just reminded me. I'm sorry. For those of you in the audience, we have Assemblyman Chivakula, who is, and let me make sure I get this right, mm. Democrat Franklin, um, Somerset County, correct? And he's one of the resident scientists on the, uh, on the legislature. Um, as I understand it. And then we have Assemblyman John Ramwick, um, Republican of Westfield, Union County, Chairman of the Assembly Republican Policy Committee. Right? And then Senator Bob Gordon, uh, big on environment. So we're going to hit you with those kinds of questions. And, and Senator Tom Kane, Jr. So please. Thank you. Government has grown too large, and government should basically stay out of the way unless absolutely necessary. During years when there was enough money to create more government, we did that. Clearly, that's a mistake. Government is, should be the last resort to solve a problem. We should be there, as his, history shows, to take care of roads, uh, keep the peace, and generally do as little as possible. That's all, the best government is the least government. And I think we've made some serious mistakes over the years. Senator Gordon. Uh, I'd like to come at this uh, from the perspective of uh, public finance and economics. And um, those who study public finance know that there's this thing called a public good, uh, things that are for government to do. I generally feel that uh, the market system works best, but there are times when markets don't work, when people don't have all the information they need, and especially when um, there are spillover effects. Pollution is a, a classic example. Uh, if government didn't get involved in pollution control uh, because the goods don't reflect the, the social costs uh, of production, there's too much pollution created. Uh, so I think that there are situations where government needs to get involved. I think we've seen, uh, just in the last few weeks, a situation where there needed to be at least some basic parameters established for the operation of financial markets. Um, because unless there are limits to the amount of risk that companies want to take, the profit motive will, will lead to excessive levels of risk, and we've seen what has happened. So my general feeling is that where you can use the market system to achieve socially desirable goals, you should, but there are going to be situations where regulations are necessary. Mm -hmm. Anyone else want to take the question? 
Yeah, Assemblyman Upendra Chibukulai. I think uh, there is a role for government. I think when you look at uh, government, there are a lot of things that uh, safety net. You have to take care of the people who cannot take care of themselves. But I, I think what has happened over a period of time, you have you come up with uh, legislations and then the regulations, and then uh, uh, 10 years later, those things are obsolete. But we don't eliminate those things, and we go back and put new ones on top of that. And so what ha net result is that the, the government, the regulatory agencies, all of them grow, and uh, then you become you, you, that, that become un, unintended consequences because you have you have to take care of this uh, whole uh, the bureaucracy, and sometimes this bureaucracy becomes very arrogant. They think that they are ultimate in charge, and uh, if I apply for a permit. Uh, yes, you should make sure that uh, all the rules, environment regulations are followed, but does not give you the authority to sit on it for six months or 18 months or so. I think that's where the arrogance of the government, government has lost its mission or uh, lost its way. Uh, that's, I think we need to fix that. We need to, to ensure, I mean, you can look at leaders before and since Lincoln who said government operates to accomplish that, that individuals themselves either individually or collectively can't accomplish on their own. Mm -hmm. um, and we need to have the right safeguards, but you know, government by and large has just grown too large. There's a great deal of overlap in government. There's a great deal of uh, government operating at cross purposes. There's a complete lack of transparency at many layers of government. And I think that what we need to do at the state level is pursue those policies that will make New Jersey more affordable but also government at every level more accountable and more transparent because the, you know those two things uh, benefit each other. Interesting. We're sounding quite bipartisan today in the spirit of the day. Um, Katie is here, and she is the um, – Katie Rosario, she's the Education Coordinator for the New Jersey Immigration Policy Network. One of the things that's exciting about this state that we're talking about, that we haven't quite figured out what its job is, is that it attracts a great many people from all over the world because they want to come and live here. And why? Tell us, tell us um, what's, your, what's your good idea about New Jersey? Well, at New Jersey Immigration Policy Network, uh, we feel that it is, it is very important and imperative for the state of New Jersey the immigrant children receive quality education. At the same time, we're fighting and advocating for policy that will benefit immigrants, such as in-state tuition, that will benefit undocumented students who have resided in the state of New Jersey for three years and graduated from high school. This is uh, Bill S-1036, and this will benefit the state by reducing the rate of graduate school dropout. At the same time, it will increase a more educated immigrant workforce for the state of New Jersey and will bring more tax revenue for the state of New Jersey. This is a bill that has been passed in uh, 11 states, citing California, New York, Florida, and Illinois. At the same time, we also uh, advocating for um, language access, which is under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and this would allow agencies that receive funds from the federal government to provide um, all materials and information in the languages of the communities that they serve. We also encourage that the bilingual education to be strengthened in the state of New Jersey by enforcing 
the mandated bilingual parent, parents' diversity committee under New Jersey Administrative Code 68-15115B. And what we do, and this is a project that I'm coordinating, is educating immigrant parents in six different languages, which are Spanish, Arabic, Gujarati, French Creole, Mandarin, Korean, and Portuguese in the state of New Jersey about their rights. Therefore, par immigrant parents will be empowered and will be active participants of the decision makings regarding their children's education. At the same time, immigrant parents will be able to demand to the Department of Education that all bilingual teachers will be certified in the subject matters that they teach in at the same time that all administrators and teachers will be able to receive cultural competence training. Therefore, they will be equipped with the skills to work with a diverse children, children from diverse backgrounds in the state of New Jersey. And we ensuring that immigrant parents and their children will receive quality education from K to 12 in the state of New Jersey. Thank you. Wonderful. Stay up here, please. Um, Mayor Patton, would you come up and join us, too, because um, this is Mayor Bob Patton of Heightstown, and he, too, has been deeply involved in the issue of immigration to the United States and most especially to New Jersey. Would you tell us a little bit about what you're thinking about? Well, absolutely. It, it entails an awful lot, and what we really need is a new New Jersey. And it's all about taxes, believe it or not. And over, over the years, an average of 60% of the borough of Heightstown taxes go towards our school system. And uh, the municipal tax portion is usually 20, 25%. Uh, but we're hearing the cry of, of taxes, taxes, taxes too much. And I bet that most municipalities out of the 566 municipalities have the same type of ratio. And I bet there's a lot that have even greater than, than that 60%. But... You know, we all hear that crying, but there is a disappearance of the middle-class people in New Jersey. They're going away because of the taxes. But f first off, I think state government needs to, to downsize, as you say, but it also has to look at the expen expense side. And I really believe that we're not doing an adequate job to do that, to reduce the spending in New Jersey. Secondly, we must establish a state constitutional convention that will address how funding for the public schools is to take place, and we have to find other ways in which to reduce or relieve the property owners from this high tax burden that we have. We have to find other ways to fund public education. Another major issue is the lack of affordable housing in New Jersey. Governor Corzine has initiated a plan through the, the Council on Affordable Housing, uh, to create much-needed housing. We do have, we have a rich and we have a not-so-rich, a poor uh, community in New Jersey. But the middle-class people are not, being, are, are not there. They're moving out because of high pro uh, property taxes and even the, uh, the high cost of just living and the high cost of uh, buying a home. Uh, I think the governor has a good idea, yet there are many flaws in that, uh, those COA regulations, and, we, and the municipal leaders are very concerned about those flaws, and we don't think that we're going to be able to meet those uh, needs uh, in a timely fashion. I think that uh, new jobs must be created to fill those houses, but on the other end, it's probably the houses have to bring people back into New Jersey. Uh, I think that then we will be realizing greater revenues for the state of New Jersey. 
I think transportation is a huge uh, concern here, too. There's not enough public mass transit methods in New Jersey. We need things like monorail systems maybe on our major highways, the turnpike, the parkway, your, your interstate highways, your major state roads. We're going to need buses. We're going to need more buses that can take people to their, to, to their workplace, to their, to their uh, jobs, and to their uh, community colleges, and to, and to their hospitals as well. Uh, I, I propose that we, we get more vehicles off the road to save energy and to help save our environment. And lastly, we need to find energy alternatives. We've got to get those windmills up. We've got to get nuclear energy. We've got to get solar panels. And I think one of the big things is to have solar panels on all our public schools, roofs, and our municipal buildings so that we can realize the effects of solar. But again, it's taxes, housing, transportation, and energy issues that are very vital to us all. Thanks a lot. Thank you both. Okay. Uh, one of the things that they both brought up is the fact that this is a gateway state. This is a gateway to immigration. This is a gateway for people who want to grow economically, who want to get better jobs. What is the role of the state from your perspective, or could the role of the state be in the 21st century, around issues related to immigration, housing, education, jobs? Thoughts? We, we are a state and we are a nation of immigrants. It's, it's a vital part of our heritage, and it's a vital part of our future. Um, we're also a nation of laws. And uh, the real solution to questions of immigration rests at the federal level. And unfortunately, Congress has failed in finding a solution, both short-term and long-term, to the issue of legal uh, migration and illegal migration. And when Congress fails... The impact is felt at the state, the county, municipal, school level uh, in many ways in many different forms. My hope is that on a, on a bipartisan basis, Congress will solve its, its issue. Um, but what we need to make sure here in the state is that we've got an education system, public education system that is second to none, that individuals, no matter where they go to school, have the exact same access to opportunities of, as of any of their peers in this state. We need to focus on those issues of equality of opportunity. Those are issues we need to address. We also need to make sure that there are jobs that exist in the state of New Jersey. We've seen that we've uh, other states, Pennsylvania, New York, Connecticut, have all outpaced us by multiples over the last several years. And we need to create economic activity in the state of New Jersey. And we need to cut the, the billions of dollars of tax increases in many ways, the tens of billions of dollars of new spending, uh, that have uh, been dramatic, and the bonding indebtedness of the state, which is going to impact all of us, where it was $14 billion by indebtedness several years ago, and it's now $40 billion. This is going to have long-term implications. How could I respond? Um, this may shock Tom, but when it comes to immigration policy, I totally agree with him. This really is a national issue. Congress dropped the ball. Um, we as legislators, mayors, are asked to, to deal with the problem at the local level. Should the local police be enforcing federal immigration laws? We need to establish uh, real borders. Uh, we have to develop uh, uh, 
reasonable policies of uh, how we deal with those who are here and how we integrate them into society. And I think if we can do that, the, the debates on whether immigrant families should be getting health care and education, all the things that government offer, those are, are easier to address. I'd like to just to respond to a couple of comments I heard the, the mayor make. And I know that uh, earlier today you, um, you looked at the results of the latest Monmouth University poll, which indicates that over 60 percent of the, our residents think that the, the state is broken. Uh, a majority of people raised uh, economic questions, cost of living, property taxes, uh, efficiency in government as being the big problems. And, um, you know, we hear a lot of talk about downsizing government, state government, but let's keep in mind that a relatively small percentage of the state budget goes for these agencies you, you see around here in Trenton. Uh, and actually, the, the, work, the state workforce has actually been dropping uh, under the Corsine administration. Where most of the money goes is out the door to school districts and municipalities. And I would argue that if we could bring some sanity to the, the way we organize local government in New Jersey, if we had fewer than 566 municipalities and 616 school districts, we wouldn't be able. We wouldn't need to spend all all that money. Property taxes are high because costs are high. Mm -hmm. In Bergen County, we have 76 school districts, each one with a superintendent of schools, and the assistant superintendents and the deputy superintendents. But just on the the, the superintendents alone, represented 15 million dollars in, in just salary. Forget about the, the benefits. You know, do we need? 76 school districts or 70 municipalities in Bergen County, I think costs are going to get to, to the point at which we are going to have to share services, consolidate. At some point, the costs are just going to overcome the, the political resistance to doing this. But we just can't go on this way. Yeah, a couple of comments. One is that uh, while the immigration, that is immigrants who are coming into this country, that policy of bringing the people in lies in the hands of uh, federal government. But once the people are here, in terms of providing education, whether it's higher education or K through 12 education, uh, providing health care and also, for example, driver's license so that way they have the mobility to move in the state, that uh, does lie in the hands of the state. And uh, we need to look at that because you have 11 states have the institution policy and some of the states have tried because of uh, uh, the, a lot of these children who are young, when they come at two, three years, only country they know is the United States. And uh, we, but they don't have the proper documentation. Uh, they can go through K through 12 education, but when they go to college, they become out of state or international students, and they have to pay additional amount of money. And so that's what the legislation uh, she was talking about. I think we need to come up with. I mean, it is a very touchy subject in terms of illegal. I mean, are the children who are brought here are they illegal? I mean. Uh, if we don't give them the opportunity, the children to advance themselves or uh, even opportunity to adjust their visa status. And I think education will be uh, key for that and uh, providing uh, institution will be a good idea. Wonderful. Thank you. Yes, I'm not sure which of the problems to address. You've raised so many problems. Uh, the response is you're, scare you're scaring me. Uh, but <laughs> let me start with the immigration issue. We had a a group uh, through the Chamber of Commerce recently, and they asked everyone to stand in one side of the room if their parents 
the grandparents were born here and the other side of the room if your grandparents were not born here. Well, about 90% of the people were in the side of the, on the side of the room where their grandparents were not born here. So in terms of immigration, we all have to be sympathetic towards that because we're not very far off from being the immigrant. The concern I have is that government is broken and it's seriously broken because the solution, at least the initial solution is, if we're not competitive with the contiguous states, and if we're not competitive with other states, people aren't going to stay. You're not going to be able to fix transportation. You're not going to be able to fix education. You're not going to be able to fix anything as people continue to exit the state. So how do we stop that exodus? We have to stop it by making it a business-friendly state, a state where people want to come and open their businesses, because without business and without opportunity, we don't have the tax revenue. So it's very nice to give benefits. And let me leave you with this story. When I got in the legislature, they handed me my pension information. I'm a part-time employee of the state, $49,000 a year. It says if I stay 12 years, I get a pension of $18,000. Well, if that system's not broken, I don't know what's broken. And that's the public paying for this pension. I think we've just ended that, at least for new legislators. But unless we reduce the cost of government, we're doomed for failure. Interesting. Interesting. One of the wonderful things that also comes out of the statistics that you said is that when we look at where our entrepreneurial energy is coming from as a state, it is heavily coming from the new immigrant community. So it is clearly, to the business-friendly issue, it is clearly a group that we want to encourage. We, we need to move on to another subject. I just want to make a quick comment. Yes. The, if you look at the recent demographics and uh, the aging workforce in America, you need to have younger workforce coming in, and the only way you're going to bring that is from the new immigrants. You're absolutely right. Absolutely right. Uh, Cornell, come on up. Um, one of the things that, that we're all kind of feeling is that there's, there's um, a brokenness to, uh, to some of what we've been looking at in the 20th century. As we look to the 21st century, we have some new tools. We have some new ways of thinking. When we talked about uh, clean slate, fresh start, we were not we were kind of talking about blowing it up, but what we were really talking about is if you could be unburdened from what the past has been and really, really open your mind and open your idea, your ideas and, and make use of the tools of today, is there something that, that you would do differently? And if so, a question that I would have for you, gentlemen, is how would we how would we improve state effectiveness? If things are broken, how do we improve effectiveness with the new ideas and new tools? Senator Gordon. Well, it's a radical idea, but you might want to just start measuring what you're producing uh -huh. uh, and establish some benchmarks and uh, best practices and try to uh, you know, strive to achieve those. Um, and one, one of the areas that I've gotten involved in is just trying to um, improve the efficiency of, of local government. And uh, in some legislation we've passed in the last couple of years, uh, we now require school districts and municipalities to uh, report data that the state can use to create uh, performance indicators so that taxpayers can compare 
you know, how much it costs to pick up a, a ton of garbage in their town compared with the town next door. Um, and my, my hope was in, in trying to advance that is that we start creating some pressure for better performance. I think we can do that at the local level. We can certainly do it at, at the state level, too. So a lot of the things that government does, I say this to those who say, why can't we just run government like a business? Business is easier. You can measure your outputs. <laughs> I think Carly you can measure Fiorina your costs. That, did she? You know, you can, you know uh, what you get for everything you put in. It's really hard to do that when you're talking about things like education and justice. Uh, it's, it's harder to measure these things. Okay. Consistent with Senator Gordon, I've suggested that we have these unannounced performance audits. So Friday afternoon at 2 o'clock, we should have a team of retired business people or forensic accountants walk into all offices, whether they be a board of education, whether they be my legislative office, whether it be the governor's office. Follow around people, see what they're doing. In my dad's store, absolutely. In my dad's store and in my law office, with all due respect, people work. They call it work because it's work. And if nobody's watching and nobody's keeping an eye on it, you're not going to get much in terms of productivity. But we kind of allow this system. Who audits government? I'd like to know. Somebody audits some paper that they get once a year? That tells me nothing. You could audit my law office on paper. You wouldn't know anything. Interesting. Metrics, testing, looking. Yeah, I think uh, when you look at the various departments, and each department does it differently, there, are, there is no single uh, process that they uh, use. And we need to streamline a lot of these processes. There is a lot of commonality among those processes. And then basically there are a lot of, uh, lot of written in the re-engineering government and uh, how to make use of the uh, technology that is available to make it e-government, make it friendly for the uh, consumers and uh, taxpayers, I, I mean. I, uh, that, is, that is lacking. A lot of the times the government, uh, most of the people in the government, uh, they are not uh, comfortable with technology. They are, it's easier to, if I send you an email, you print it and you read it rather than you read it on the screen itself. And I think that, that, side, uh, that sort of mindset has to change. And uh, definitely there is a lot of things that we can do. We call it a paperless society. I haven't seen this much paper in my, in, in the, before we call it a paperless society. I think we have to, we have to do something much better. I think make it easeasier online. A lot of the things, of course, there are there's certain population that doesn't have the access to uh, computers and all that. We have to facilitate that, and we have to bring them along. I think that's uh, key. That's missing. I had to call Jerry up here to, uh, to get in on this discussion because Jerry Cantrell is from the New Jersey Taxpayers Association, correct? So and we need tell, to. Tell us, uh, tell us one, of your, uh, one of your big ideas, and then we'll, we'll get some conversation going here. I think one of the things is that the citizens of this state live in the state of taxpayer purgatory. If you don't believe that, then you live in the state of denial. I think we have to look in terms of cutting spending now, and this is not a partisan issue. We're not a partisan group. We're absolutely nonpartisan. We have to look at where we could cut now, not in the future, because we're, we are trading off our next generation and the generation after that's future based upon our wants. So we have to get back to, to working with leaders who have the vision, who get away from the selfishness and the partisanship, et cetera, and get down to what we really need to do. We cannot shift the burden. I hear people talking about property taxes are unfair. You don't like property taxes, raise the income taxes. Well, guess what? Shifting the burden is not the solution. 
All that does is identify a different source of feeding the monster of continuing growth in, in debt and spending. We've got to get within, you know, live within our means. Property taxes are supposed to pay for certain things in our communities. That should be where the dollars go, not to continue to grow or shift the burden. Oh, okay, well, property taxes are getting too expensive. Let's go over to sales taxes or fees or whatever else. The people in this state have had it. And we're looking for leadership, vision, whatever you want to call it, but leadership that says, okay, you know what? We can't go on anymore because guess what? This is a, this is a train wreck on its way very clearly to, to being a disaster. And just like a lot of people talked earlier today about the, uh, what happened on Wall Street, what happened was because they weren't generating any, any real product there. They're just shifting around burdens and, and fees and things of that nature, and that's all we're doing in the state. You're not helping the people. Education, wonderful thing. All of us have kids. We want the best education possible. Guess what? It's a monopoly. We need competitive, uh, something competitive in the educational environment. If you can get a better education by spending half as much, we're spending $25,000 in our city to educate students. In my, in my county, in Morris County, you can go to the most exclusive private school for $25,000 a year. Makes no sense because we are the highest spending state in the nation, and yet the results were probably somewhere around 9 and 14th as far as outcomes. Doesn't make any sense, and you just can't keep doing it forever. It might be nice. We're sitting there with our teachers and our communities, and we want to be ladies and gentlemen. Guess what? At the end of the day, it's going to bankrupt the entire system. And then where is everybody going to be? Screaming and running like the people who are getting laid off in Wall Street. I'm going to Thank stop you. you for a minute there. He's really getting to the issue of effectiveness that, that you all brought up, too. How can we make government more effective with what we have in the 21st century? You talked about paperless. Um, you didn't have a chance to talk on that subject. I, I, I think we need to make the government as nimble Nimble. as it can That's humanly be. Uh, and that means using advances in technology wherever we can. As you were talking about, uh, Jerry, it's not about shifting burdens any longer. It's about making the state more affordable because if you shift burdens, you just increase burdens on everybody. And what we need to find are solutions. And I think what we need to focus on are ideas. And we, we, I mean, these are great people that, I, that I've served with, and I think we've all got a commonality of goal, whether it be on... You know, enhancing technology performance or performance audits or uh, looking at efficiency of government. And there's a contrast between, you know, I, I personally believe that that level of government that's closest to the people is the most responsive. And frequently on, on some counties, that's where you have the more opaque or some of the larger governmental entities, it becomes more opaque. And so we need to figure out ways that we can pierce the veil. But we also need to have a legislative body that actually exercises increased oversight over executive branch functions, whether it be an equivalent of a general accounting office in the state to create, it, as we have at the federal level, to figure out, is executive branch doing what it needs to do? Because I think over time, something like the GAO, in combination with performance arts, with technology, with right-sizing of government, we can create structures of government that will actually achieve their core purposes, which is to... Uh, make New Jersey affordable, make the government accountable, make sure there's a quality of opportunity in our society. You know, let me come back to you in one second. Um, one of the things that's so important is balancing effectiveness with issues of social justice. 
And I'd like Cornell Brooks from the uh, New Jersey Social New Jersey Institute for Social Institute for Social Justice to speak for a minute, and then we'll come back. Certainly, um, I, I think in conversations like these, there is a, uh, an assumption that there is a, a gap, a chasm between the uh, terms that we use for an agenda revolving around social justice, namely uh, terms. Uh, uh, around compassion, uh, but I'd like to suggest that there's also a vocabulary of, of competition. And one issue that I think is representative of, of that is the issue of prisoner reentry. When we think about the issue, uh, not just in terms of public safety, but also think about it in terms of competition, when we consider uh, that uh, New Jersey really represents the face of the world, if for the first time in human history, uh, a majority of the world lives in cities, and since New Jersey is the most diverse and densely populated state in the country, it really represents the face of the future for the entire world. Uh, when we think about urban labor markets, where in a city like Newark, uh, as many as half of the men who show up at the one stop have a criminal record, to the extent that they are barred by statutory and licensure bars, employment bars, they're not rationally related to the risk that they could pose to the public, not rationally related to the job they're asked to perform. So for example, if someone has a criminal background, a, a criminal record related to the, the sale of drugs, a low-level low drug user, a drug uh, dealer, but they can't be an entrepreneur, can't uh, drive a taxi because they can't get a taxi license or cut hair as a barber, that's something the business community has to think about thoughtfully, because what you have in effect is a labor market failure. Well, you, that is to say you have people who are willing to work for the prevailing wage, but who are barred from working by irrational uh, employment bars. And this is a significant public policy issue for cities across this state. Because when we think about the fact that 70,000 uh, ex-offenders returning to uh, New, New Jersey communities uh, all across the state, but one-third of which return to Camden, and Essex counties. Wow. When we think about the fact that we literally have all of these externalities, we have an impact on the educational system, an impact on the housing market. Uh, if the Federal Reserve uh, recognizes, I mean, they held a conference on the older cities and put prison reentry as an issue that impacts economic development, I'd like to su suggest that we think about this not just in terms of public safety, but really as an economic development issue. Because with two million people behind bars in this country. We can ill afford to think about this as a moral luxury as opposed to an economic necessity. That's, every, that's in everyone's interest and everyone's bottom line. Thank you. How does government choose? I mean, when you've got, when you've got someone saying, we need to take care of all of our citizens, and yet someone else saying, we can't afford any more. How do you choose? Well, I think the issues are very distinct. First, as a member of law and public safety, what happens with a vote like that, though rationally it makes no sense to bar someone from cutting hair who has a low-level drug offense, some politicians are afraid that that's going to be the ad against them in their next political race. I think generally we can agree that that's bad public policy to bar someone on an unrelated crime. And I think we have moved, at least as my recollection, we've moved to try to change some of those rules. But if there is no employer in the urban center, it's not going to make much uh, difference if the person can get a job. That's why it's so important to try to attract employers and business 
into urban centers, then in conjunction with these changes in the law, we have what hopes to be a flourishing economy. Uh, well, I'd like to suggest that in terms of uh, there's efforts that the state can make uh, behind bars. That is to say, if the average person behind bars uh, reads and computes at a high elementary school or middle school level, at low middle school level at best, uh, they return to their communities and are asked to be responsible uh, and to contribute to the tax base, to support their families, support their children. It just seems to me that we have to do more behind bars. I mean, there are thoughtful, fiscally responsible things that we can do in terms of online education. Most of us understand that that's, that's really a part of the educational revolution uh, for most of us uh, who are law-abiding abiding citizens. But right now, the way we are treating uh, incarceration here in New Jersey, it's essentially punishment uh, without responsibility. That is to say you can serve the time without improving your, your educational status, without acquiring vocational skills, if only 20% of the people behind bars uh, are really participating in the educational process and improving, them, improving themselves vocationally, th there's something that we're not doing. Uh, the metrics, if you will, are, are not working in our favor because there should be accountability there so that there's accountability when people go beyond the prison gate, come back to their communities, and are expected to, to deliver for their families and, and their communities. I'm going to stop us there because this is another big, important issue that we could spend a whole afternoon on. Let me just add, we're starting our war on, on taxes in New Jersey campaign shortly. There are brochures outside. Please pick them up or go to our website. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, too. Correct. And now Our we've got comment. one other no conflicting, conflicting priority, which is the environment. Can I have our environmental speakers come up, please? And I'm sorry, I don't Tell me who you are. Dave Pringle, New Jersey Environmental Federation. Great. Hi, Dave. Captain Bill Sheehan. You're the the wonderful. Hello, wonderful. Um, I'm going to ask you um, to speak in, would you start? Your energy, your... Uh, I'll, let me just go. Go. <laughs> um, actually, I don't think there's a conflict. Um, the stuff that's good for the environment done right is good for the economy and vice versa. Um, environmentally, we're not doing it right here in New Jersey. It's a mess. Uh, I'll just cite one example. The Highlands Act, it's a couple hundred pages. Has a high, the DP rules implemented, another couple hundred pages. The Highlands RMP, another couple hundred pages. Several appendices that go to that, several more hundred pages. That doesn't even get to go with all the other DP rules and DCA rules and state plan rules. So. Um, the first thing we need to do is simplify. We builders need to clear yes and a clear no. Environmentalists need to clear yes and clear no. Um, there isn't a rule in this state environmentally that builders can legitimately say that they deserve a permit. Environmental community could deservedly say the permit. The answer should be no. Um, there's no clear rules. That's what we need. Second, um, smart growth. I'm sure somebody's talked about it all, uh, but where we build, how we build having the energy, the transportation, the schools, the energy, I'm trying to be quick in interest of You're time. You're doing great. Um, having it walkable, mass transit, how big the footprint is, how many stories, um, you know, building efficiency, uh, that, that's clearly the way to go. Third, internalizing um, the externalities. I'll give you one example. You think that um, when you buy something, you pay the true cost of that, but we don't. When you burn coal, it doesn't inflect, in, impact, uh, reflect the increased cost because of asthma, emphysema, lung cancer, the health care costs, the lost work days, uh, the quality of life from being sick, um, and the loss of life because we burn coal. 
That, none of those costs are reflected in when we get our utility bill from PSE&G every month. Um, it doesn't reflect the fact that that coal comes from blowing off a mountaintop um, and filling in a valley and filling in a stream. Um, and the, uh, not just the, the environmental aesthetic value in that, but the economic value in the oxygen storage, in the flood, flood storage, in the air and water uh, filtering that go, pollution filtering that comes from that forest. Um, so tr internalizing the um, externalities is the third point I wanted to make. And then finally, we just need much better public discourse, uh, whether it be um, the influence of money, and their money will always influence um, politics, but uh, public financing in a full-time legislature, I think, would be um, strong ways to go, um, improving public discourse. Also, much better uh, public disclosure. I live in the 7th Congressional District. It's a hotly contested race. I know if two people, I think three, is Frank, no, Franklin's in the other district. Um, <laughs> but um, my organization endorses, but I haven't taken a stand on that race because both candidates are environmentally uh, great. Uh, but um, I get this mail from the Patriot Majority, which is a 527, some independent group. Um, and, you know, you can disagree on the candidate's merits or whatever, but I've gotten five pieces of mail in the last three weeks that says that Leonard Lance is a fiscal liberal. And <laughs> I bet you if we did the poll right now, there'd be 100% saying that, you know, yes, no, is Leonard Lance a fiscal liberal? No. But, you know, people don't know that outside of this room, and they get five pieces of mail and say, oh, he's a fiscal liberal. So uh, at minimum, we should have disclosure of who these folks are. Um, and the same goes with the webs. You know, That's Politics NJ, when I signed up to comment, I put in my name, David Pringle, New Jersey Environmental Federation, not politics Republicans are great or Democrats are horrible or whatever. We need true public discourse and disclosure. True public discourse and disclosure. Uh, I think uh, when we did the uh, Speaker Roberts, uh, we, we passed the 25-24 uh, uh, point ethics package. I think 527 disclosure was one of the things that we passed a couple of years ago. I think uh, disclosure is a very important thing uh, in terms of uh, where the money is coming from and how it is being spent and all that. I think we, we, uh, we can, having that transparency will help. The public elections, I think, uh, public financing, and it has worked in many other states, has not worked in New Jersey, a tremendous cost to the taxpayers. I mean, uh, uh, districts 14, they spent uh, a few million dollars. I mean, can we afford? We have 40 legislative districts. If you continue that, can we afford that? Unless we uh, make the election, electoral process, more efficient and effective so that we, we don't have to spend these five pieces of literature, and we need to do that. And environment, I agree with you. Five pieces of literature in the first place. It just shouldn't. Be done, but I understand that, really but it could be it could be coming from the candidates also. So it is uh, 527. Mm -hmm. I think disclosure. Uh, it's a democratic society. I mean, you have a, a First Amendment that allows you the free speech. You can do a lot of the things in the. Uh, so anyway, that is. Uh, but I think the environmental policy coal. When you burn coal. Uh, the, what the, the uh, carbon dioxide we are breathing in New Jersey not necessarily comes from New Jersey. It also comes from neighboring states. So we have to, we do live in an area, region that uh, we have to have uh, some kind of regulations at the federal level. And uh, New Jersey is part of the REGI, which is a regional greenhouse gas initiative uh, group. And so they have, we have passed the Global Warming Response uh, Act and then also the Global Warming Response Fund for the cap and trade program for carbon dioxide. Since you bring that up uh, and your issue is energy, won't you speak? 
Okay. Um, well, I guess the thing I wanted to talk about is if I was the governor of New Jersey or the head of the Senate or the Assembly, what would I do to bring about a new energy future that breaks our dependence on fossil fuels? And I believe that by 2030, New Jersey could be completely dependent um, independent uh, from fossil fuels if we did the right thing to direct our utility spending, basically the ratepayers' dollars, and the government investments that we're making at the state level and at the federal level in the right direction. Um, you know, there's billions of dollars that could be rede redirected from things like toll roads being widened, from things like utility companies building major new power lines to pipe in energy, dirty energy from Pennsylvania. If we took the resources that we're going to spend on these strategies, which will bury our state in more global warming pollution and actually invest them in things like renewable energy and energy efficiency, we actually could meet that goal th four different ways. One way would be obviously 100% renewable energy serving our grid by 2030 through things like offshore wind. We, can, we actually have all the potential we need to power our entire state off our coast. This doesn't mean we want to develop all of our ocean and all the potential that's out there, but the potential is out there to literally fuel our entire state with all its electricity needs, solar, small hydropower, and developing wave and tidal energy, which are really, um, you know, kind of sources that we haven't even explored yet. Um, by 2030, all the new buildings that we build in our state can be net zero, which means over the course of a year, any building we build, a home or a commercial building, uh, is super efficient and generates any energy it needs. You know, maybe not every single day is it completely off the grid, but over the course of a year, it could, develop, it could actually um, not need to, to use more energy from the grid than it just can generate its own energy. Third thing is electric highways so that we can have plug-in hybrids and electric vehicles. Um, to drive in. We, right now we don't have the infrastructure in our state and we need it. And then the fourth is mass transit along all of the really big roads that people are driving, the Turnpike, the Parkway, Route 1, 287. And like I said, this can all be paid for. It's not a, a bill that goes to the state. It can all be paid for by redirecting all the money that we as ratepayers are paying and all the money that, um, that our governments give to oil, gas, and coal at the federal level and that our government gives to subsidize utility um, infrastructure in our state that's really um, linked to uh, fossil fuel. So that's my vision. It's not really about government and how it works. It is to some degree, but... But it is, vision. because you're saying although government doesn't have to provide the money, what can government provide to make that vision possible? Senator Gordon? Um, well, first of all, I think it's encouraging that both presidential candidates are talking about uh, major initiatives in, in renewable energy. It's the applause line uh, <laughs> in each convention. And uh, I was uh, pleasantly surprised to learn that uh, New Jersey is really a world leader already in renewable energy. I think we're, n we're number three in the world in photovoltaics. Germany, California, New Jersey, we're doing a lot of innovative things. We've just seen uh, an approval for 92 turbines off uh, 20 miles off the coast in uh, off Cape May County. You know, the reality is, though, it's, it's easier said than done. We're at, if you look at how much of our energy now is from renewables, I think, as I do the math, about 1.5% of our electrical uh, supply is from renewables. We've set a goal of an excess of 20% by, by, by 2020. Um, and if you do the math, if we achieve some very aggressive um, uh, uh, conservation programs, uh, if those are successful, uh, 
and you're somehow able to go from 1.5% to a, a, a much higher percentage, there's still a big gap. And what I think a lot of people don't want to talk about, it's a very controversial issue, is the role of nuclear. Uh, half of our electrical supply is from nuclear plants. And that has to be part of the discussion. It's just not a matter of sort of shifting resources around. And again, I think this is one of those areas where we need some help from Washington. We really do need something like a, a Marshall Plan, a NASA kind of program, because it, this really is one of the most serious problems our, our country faces. Seventy percent of our, of our oil comes from overseas, many of those sources very insecure, up from 20 percent in the 70s, the last time we had an energy mm -hmm. crisis. This is a, a dagger at the heart of America, and the next president has to address that. I, I, go ahead, Senator. I, I don't believe that, uh, that economic growth and economic development and environmental protection are necessarily at cross purposes. The more you know, businesses throughout the ages have found that the more efficient that they are, uh, the more profitable mm -hmm. they, they can become. It's a, it's a very simple matrix. If you have less of a, a pollution outflow, you can internalize a lot more uh, profit. You can employ more people. I think what we need to do is ensure that there are incentives to create those type of opportunities uh, throughout the New Jersey economy as well as throughout the, uh, the national economy on issues from uh, jet energy generation to uh, the other. We need to, state government and federal government need to set goals. And then the private sector is innovative enough they can work on ways to achieve many of those goals. That's what state role can help. You know, state government can create incentives, alternatives, what have you. But the goal is to create goals. And then the private we are unmatched in our creativity in this country. I would argue we don't match in, in the state. In the state. As a nation of, uh, you know, as a state of Edison, as the uh, innovator state, we need to create opportunities and ensure that the economic engine, the entrepreneurial engine, is released. And I'm very optimistic that we can do that in a partnership way. Well, that's exciting. Can we release that entrepreneurial engine and yet still have the Hackensack River be clean? Can the riverkeeper tell us? Well, thank you. Uh, it's funny that we went down this road about energy because energy and clean water are inextricably linked. Uh, one of the problems that we have with uh, coal-fired plants is the mercury deposition that takes place in our waterways. There's not a lake, river, or stream in the state of New Jersey that doesn't have a health advisory associated with the consumption of locally caught fish. That's a shame. Thirty years, Over 30 years ago, the federal government passed the Clean Water Act and promised every one of us that we would have fishable and swimmable waters by 1985. And here we are in the 21st century still debating whether or not we should put mercury into the atmosphere, which winds up in our rivers. That's, a, that's an aberration. We're, we're supposed to be a smart state. Why, why haven't we figured this one out? Uh, water is at the crux of every problem in New Jersey. Water is the one resource that none of us can live without. Without water, you die in a matter of days. There's no doubt about it. And in New Jersey, we have been artificially supporting growth for growth's sake by moving water around taking water from one watershed and putting it into another because that's convenient. 
and at the expense of the ecosystems, at the expense of the open space, at the expense of the quality of life for the people where that water is coming from. Because the areas, for instance, Jersey City, Jersey City in the 1800s had already fouled its own nest. It could no longer draw well water for the population to drink. They went and they bought a water supply so far out in the country that it would be pristine and clean forever, so they thought back in the 1800s. Where they bought it was the Rockaway River in Boonton, New Jersey, and everybody knows that as soon as the interstate highway system came in, Boonton, New Jersey became a suburb. The whole area of that watershed now is the Highlands, and we're fighting on a day-to-day basis over the Highlands master plan and what to save there while the people in Jersey City are building skyscrapers along the Hudson River. (laughs) Skyscrapers that are going to be inhabited by workers and people that one day, if we don't watch what we're doing and if we're not real careful with what we're doing, one day they're going to turn on the tap and nothing's coming out. And then do we fix it? I think we'll be way beyond fixing it by that point. And I, I look to you folks, the legislative leaders of the state, the governor of the state, the elected officials across the state, to take a hard look at the water supply, and not only water in. Water in is important for people to sustain their life, to sustain their lifestyle. But water out is the biggest waste that goes on in this state. In other states that have already hit the wall water-wise, they treat their wastewater to a level where it can be reused. They treat their wastewater to a level where it can be used for industrial cooling, it can be used for irrigation, it can be used for various non-potable water uses. What do we do with our wastewater? Most of it gets discharged right into either the Atlantic Ocean or one of our estuaries where it mixes with the salt from the ocean, and we don't get another shot at that water until it goes through the entire water cycle, which slowly but surely we are depleting those supplies. So we need to fix the water problem before we even... Talking about growth in places like Newark and Jersey City, talking about growth in places like Patterson, New Jersey, and Camden, New Jersey, and right here in Trenton, this is where time and time again... Leadership has pointed to these towns and said, these cities, and said, this is where we want people to live. Well, right now, this city and those other cities that I mentioned are sitting on top of combined sewer systems that overflow raw sewage into the waterways of our state every time it rains, and yet we're saying that these areas should be growth-receiving areas. Let's fix the infrastructure for water. Let's get people using, reusing wastewater, and let's conserve as much water as we can now because future generations depend on it. And it's not about me, and it's not about you. It's about future generations in this state. Thank you. That's great. You. It, is, it is about future generations. Thank you. I'd like to leave the last word to you all. We've heard about environmental issues. We've heard about energy issues. We've heard about the most basic problem, which is will we have enough clean drinking water and industrial water to use. Um, 21st century leadership. You are 21st century leaders. Do the opportunities that come to you because you are 21st century leaders outweigh the challenges, or is it the other way around? Are you optimistic about what you can achieve, or are you discouraged? Can you all just 
give us a minute on that, uh, Senator, or excuse me, Assemblyman Brim. I have to tell you that I have deep concerns about the future of New Jersey unless we do put together leadership in this state that works 24 hours a day, seven days a week on the major problems that we face. I believe that government has gotten lazy also. Look, I've been in the private sector, I stay in the private sector. I'm very concerned about the public sector. They only react when there's a crisis. We have a number of crises that exist today. I don't see, at least from my perspective as a part-time legislator, the energy or the, uh, the work ethic generally in terms of our state. This is a crisis. We need to be working on this seven days a week just as if you're building a business. We can't do it at seminars. We can't do it in reforms. We can't have breaks in the legislature for the entire summer. We can't meet once or twice a month. We need to be down there and we need to be listening to people. My con the Board of Education, the councils, public can come before those bodies. They can speak and they have to get an answer. We isolate ourselves in Trenton. The public cannot speak at any of our uh, general sessions. I don't understand why. Once a month, the public should come down, just like the people of this microphone, and they say, here's the question, answer it. Put the feet to the fire of the legislature. Also, I think the governor should be in the room as well. If you've ever seen the way the parliament works, how they ask the prime minister a question, he has to respond. Asking is the polite way of describing it. Well, that's, that's, <laughs> I like the fact, but I want to hear it from the public. And I don't want a situation where we can only speak on the bill that's before the legislature once a month. This is a crisis situation. We've got to get to work, and we've got to get to work real quickly. Okay. Who else would the, like to speak? The, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Senator King, you started twice now. No, that's, that's, that's fine. That's fine. Oh, Th okay. Thank you for, for allowing us the opportunity to be here today. And you really do have uh, some of the important ideas people in the legislature uh, here to my right, individuals who want to work seven days a week and want to make a difference for the next generation. It's great to, great to be with uh, them. Uh, Shakespeare's Henry V once said on the evil battle that it's uh, tis true we are in danger, but therefore greater should our courage be. We have opportunities in this state opportunities for the future that are created because of the challenges that we face as, as a state, as a society, as, as families. Um, we need to be innovative. We need to find the solutions. I certainly know that, that my BlackBerry, my, my cell phone, my, uh, my email in, the, in my district office uh, ring morning, noon, and night. And there have been some wonderful ideas that have come in through the email at 3 a.m. in the morning. And I think it's very important that between using the technology of the website, like we do at the Senate, State Senate Republican Caucus, uh, SenateNJ.com, where we can bring in ideas from the citizens of this state. We can w interact with people in all news media that we've never had the opportunity to do so before with real-time communications. My hope is the public. And you know, one of our purposes of the legislature is also to make sure that we save NJN because it's one of the important news flow and information flows for the people of the state of New Jersey. We can be creative. We can find the solutions. We can make New Jersey affordable. We can get, make government accountable. But as I said before, it's a partnership that needs to exist because the next generation of uh, people who are going to be proud to call New Jersey home uh, depend on it.
Senator Gordon. Yeah. Uh, as I recall, you asked what a 21st century leader should be, uh, and I think the key skills are the same uh, that were important in the 20th century and the 19th and maybe going back to the 15th. Um, we touched on a, a wide variety of problems here, and as I listened to them, I, I, I was thinking that really the, the major obstacle to, to solving those problems uh, are political. Whether you're talking about smart growth and trying to channel growth into established communities, the older suburbs, or whether you're talking about regionalization and shared services and getting one town to merge with the other, the obstacles are political. You know, we can come up with a solution here in a forum, but when you get down into a, a local meeting and ask people, do you want to start sending your kids to the school in the town next door, then it becomes very political. And for a 21st century leader, like leaders before us, I think the key skill is being able to uh, use one's personal skills to convince people of where they have to go and then take them there. That's what a 21st leader should, 21st century leader should be. I'm very optimistic about the 21st century that uh, we have made so many advances, whether it is uh, technological advances and your ability to communicate with your constituents and all that, as well as uh, healthcare. We made so much, so much uh, progress in the healthcare technologies that people are living longer, and that's why our healthcare system is costing so much. But I think uh, as we see the problems and as the technologies are there, we are able to educate the people, and a lot of the people are aware of uh, responsible living, and uh, also they want to participate in the representative democracy, and I think uh, we can work together on a bipartisan basis. I think uh, it is, uh, I, I do understand that elections, uh, during the time of elections, you can uh, do the posturing and all that. When you uh, come into uh, governance, once you are elected, you have a responsibility to all the people irrespective of which party they belong to because you have to do the public good. I think that's what we should aim for. I thank you all, and we look to you for great leadership in the 21st century. Thank you. Thank you. Well, first of all, you each get $10,000 for having stayed to the end of the day. We would offer that to you guys, but we know that it's over the $25 limit, so you can't take it. Actually, we had lavish gifts for you, but we gave them back because we knew you'd just throw them back in our faces. Uh, the world does not end uh, with either a bang or a whimper today, although, remember, Beijing is still out there. This has been streaming all day, guys, on NJN. So there are lots of folks who uh, have had the opportunity to view what's going on, and as people have spoken, they have disappeared, and you are accustomed to how that happens because you guys do that too when you're off places. I gotta go, you know, I gotta, whatever. But we need to thank you. We need to thank Diane Brake and Catherine Kish, who put the day together, along with Andrew Sinclair, who is over there, who is well known to all of you because he has to interact with you on a regular basis, and actually, He's one of our heroes at uh, Leadership New Jersey, at the Forum of the Future of New Jersey. We have to thank Phil Salerno, who heads up the graduate organization, which allows this to happen. We have to thank Tom D'Alessio, who is the executive director of Leadership New Jersey, and without whom and without whose staff, including Sarah Slayman here in the front. And Stephanie, you're still over there? Stephanie Carter. Uh, this would not have happened. We want to thank all of our friends at NJN, including Nyla Aronow and 
Eileen Master Giovanni, and all of the guys who are in the room who made today happen. And we want to thank NJN for allowing this to stream so that the people in Beijing can see how the Hackensack Riverkeeper feels about you know what's going on. And finally, we have to thank all of our sponsors, which include the Bank of America, plus Birdsell Engineering. That's our favorite because we neglected to put them on the list, so we promised that we would repeat their name many times during the day. Uh, so we are now going to do important things like clean up the room. We thank you for being here. Uh, Tom, do you have a parting remark you want to make? Just to thank everyone for being here. And if anyone would like to make a comment, you can go to info at leadershipnj.org, and we can actually accept any comments and all comments. So thank you, everyone. Thank you, Beijing, and we appreciate it. Have a good night. We hope you enjoyed this Leadership New Jersey podcast program. Be sure to listen to the other podcasts in this series and let us know what you think of these programs by sending an email to lnj at professionalpodcasts.com. We produce these podcasts in the studios of Professional Podcasts, LLC, in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. For Leadership New Jersey, this is Steve Lubetkin. Thank you for listening and take good care.